This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of any offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network and Maj Don are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back to Avoiding the Crowd podcast with your host, Maj Sway Don. I'm the show's producer, Robert Kraft. And uh, joining on us on this very special episode that is really awesome is our, uh, our anonymous investor in the markets, uh, our, our, our favorite anonymous Australian investor, uh, the Gladiator HC, at the Gladiator HC on Twitter. So I'd like to welcome you all to this episode. Maj, Gladiator, say what up. Well, I'm your favorite. That, that's, that's a huge compliment. But you my said favorite. favorite Aussie as well, so not the favorite but Aussie, but that's good. Well, but. no, the fa- the fa- look, I have, to, I have to be diplomatic. There's many anonymous <laughs> investors now. You just happen to be the only Aussie anonymous investor, so that's why you're also I'll, our favorite. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and Mosh, what's going on, host? How you doing? I'm doing great, man. I've had a good week, and I'm glad I'm here with Gladio. We, we, we've talked a lot on Twitter here and there, and um, it's good to finally talk to him live. Should be should be fun. Yeah, this should be fun. That's for sure. And you know, I'm, if everybody watching this, we I know y'all are missing Maj's backdrop, but don't worry, it's being it, it'll be back soon, right? Your your geo investing backdrop, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I got yelled at for not having a good one, so I had to. Uh, my brother didn't like it so much. Well, you know, what you got to do. You got to make like one in like where it's like the logo in the corner. I see that. Oh, yeah. I see that a lot. That's like a, that's like a nice way of doing. It. That's, that's why I thought nothing else because I don't know anything else. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's good stuff. Well, let me, let me uh, give, set the stage here. You know, everybody uh, who's watching it, this today, the reason that we invited the Gladiator HC on today to join us for Avoiding the Crowd is because he just wrote a really awesome article. Uh, it was kind of a Q&A with Maj recently that he published on his website. So we invited him on to join us for the whole episode, not only to talk about that article itself, but then uh, we're going to go into Maj's most recent newsletter and talk about some of the things on there. So, you know, I figured with that, you know, I'm going to shut up. I'm going to get out of here. And uh, Maj, Gladiator, floor is yours, guys. Yeah, man, thanks, Maj. Hey, and, and Gladiator, you, you, we want, I want to really talk about what he's doing, too, on his website. He's doing a lot of good things, writes a lot of good, I think, educational articles from his own perspective of investing over the years, um, you know, success and failures. And um, I think he's running a class right now uh, how, to, how to maybe pick stocks and that's some kind of challenge, he called it the $50,000 challenge. So we should talk about that too. Um, but yeah, you know, glad you know, I really never, I, you, you kind of, you know, asked me a lot of questions and, you know, I went through them to learn about me, but well, I'd like to know about more about you. I don't think we ever had that like intense conversation. Maybe you could get into that a little bit and some of your history. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I kind of stumbled upon uh, the stock market and penny stocks back in 2009 um, so I, was, I am still, but I was a real, uh, predominantly a real estate investor back then. And just in the process of, you know, saving up some money to get another property, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll try and learn a new skill instead of just um, sitting around and just saving for a couple of years. So the logic, uh, the next logical kind of investment vehicle is the stock market. So I, uh, I went onto this website called Hot Copper and it, it, luckily for me, they predominantly focus on penny stocks. And so without really even knowing it, I had just thrown myself into the world of penny stocks and micro cap stocks. And um, I was doing that pretty much since 2010, as in actively getting involved in buying stocks. And it took me about, you know, made a lot of stocks. And I talk about these in my um, articles, you know, made a lot of failures, a lot of mistakes, which I think pretty much every investor would do um, early in their career. And it took me about five years to even get back my money. So, you know, I was doing, I don't know, I semi-calculated about 5,000 hours in that time to be able to actually get my money back. So I think that's where most people kind of fall over is they get to the point where they've lost a lot of money, they finally get it back and then they sigh of relief and they quit. I think that's probably the worst time to quit because after all that knowledge and after 
all that experience to get back to the point where you've finally broken even is, is a huge milestone. It's not something to, you know, to be upset about that you've lost some money. Everybody does it. So that was, took me to about 2015 where I finally got my money back. And then from then, just really um, focusing on less about you know, making money, more about kind of enforcing my strategy. And I think that's where things started to turn around. When you know, stop trying to get in these you know get rich quick schemes. Stop investing in oil uh, drillers and explorers. Or you know, it's either a plus five hundred percent or a minus ninety five percent overnight. And just trying to find some really great companies that you can invest in the medium to long term. And you know, I think you call them T one micro caps, um, mm-hmm. where they're you know real companies doing real things, um, management who are dedicated. You know, they've got skin in the game. And when I started to focus more on that, yeah, my success of my luck really started to turn which has been great and i've my honestly i'm loving it more than i ever have and i I didn't think back in 2009 slash 10 that i would actually enjoy it this much um now real estate investing is kind of not to the side but i i i much more focus on my micro cap investing because it's kind of my passion at the moment excellent yeah and and i I kind of went through a similar path in, in part of my career i didn't get into penny stocks till later on maybe i would say um you know, mid-career, I guess, wise as a full-time investor. And I went through that same kind of, you know, you get out, you get kind of caught up in the whole penny stock thing. And there's a lot of, you know, stories, story stocks in penny stock land. And it's, it's really hard sometimes when you first get introduced to it, hard to dissect what's a good story and what's a great company. And, um, you know, that, that took some time and uh, it took me a few, few years to get that right too. Um, but I'm, but, but it's cool because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of investors out there who just believe penny stocks are all trash. And, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, they're not all. I mean, there might be a lot going through a lot of, you know, turnarounds of stuff or, cha- or problems they're facing and challenges. Maybe that's why they are penny stocks, but it doesn't mean they're shitty companies all the time. And, um, you know, with a good management team and a clean capital structure and a potential catalyst, um, you know, you never know when those those things can, those pennies can turn, can turn into you know dollar, three, four, five dollar stocks over time. And um, I think um, we kind of hit that same kind of I think realization over time. But, yeah, um, I think that's that's our advantage, right? Where everyone thinks they're rubbish stocks, and if we had you know the vast majority of stock market investors moving from large caps to micro cap stocks, then you know it wouldn't be such an inefficient market. Which no, is, you know, it's what we try and take advantage of, right? These stocks where people are underestimating them, that's writing them off because of either their market cap or their, the share price being so low. or um, And yeah, so hopefully people keep hating them. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's, <laughs> nice about, what's nice about the, sec- the universe is that, I mean, that they're always going to be inefficient. That's to some degree. You know, yep. the, they'll gain a popularity, but it's never, you're, always gonna, you're never going to be to where... Um, a total efficiency, especially in our tier one space, because a lot of minor cap investors are, cha- um, you know, especially uh, maybe maybe newbies or whatever, they're chasing these like we use what we used to chase all the time, right? Yeah, you know, chasing those story stocks, and because they they offer the allure of quick gains overnight, and they ignore some of these stocks, and they take a little time to marinate uh, to get better. But um, you know, what is interesting too that once in the right environment, you could, um, tier one companies can also do very well too in the short term. Yeah, I think we're kind of in a sweet spot on that right now, actually. And no, we say, I completely agree. Yep. We say tier one, you know, I think I cover it. And let me see if I can find it here, Gladiator. In the, um, I think we cover it in the article that we talked about or we uh, contributed. Yeah, we did. It was in your strategy section. Let me try to find it. Yeah, so basically, um, I'll just go over them real quick. I mean, there are, there are, a lot of them are obvious. And um, strong, a strong management team, management focus on the business and not the stock price movement necessarily. Um, so a respectable level of revenue, you know, even if it's, you know, just starting, but at least having some revenue, um, add on your profitability. Um, I love high probability turnaround companies because they're often ignored. And if you get them maybe in the fifth or sixth inning, you can get some really good pricing. Yeah. Bobby and I actually went through that in our first podcast. And I think we're very similar in that regard where if you can pick the company right at its turnaround stage, um, there's a really high chance that you can um, realize some massive gains, you know, Obviously, you still got to follow your strategy and make sure management have skin in the game. Like you said, make sure they're actually kicking some goals, whether it be revenue or whatever it is they're aiming for. But that moment of them changing from a, you know, the stock just been, it's been smashed for so long because previous management haven't delivered and they've just been replaced or they've just picked up a new acquisition or their product is really starting to get some momentum. That turnaround stage is where I love to get set myself to. 
you know, it's, it's become one of my favorite things to do. I mean, I didn't, um, I didn't invest in any turnarounds in the very beginning of it. I was, I was trying to look at all these like obvious, simple stories that, um, you know, just were, were clean companies that were undervalued in, um, at that, you know, you know, 20 years, 20, 30 years ago, that was a little easier because the market was a little less efficient. Um, now that it's more efficient, sometimes you got to dig a little deeper and trying to get these stocks earlier. And I enjoy a lot, actually, like as you do. And yep. um, especially that management thing, there's, there's a situation where if you find the right management team, um, it's, it's really um, almost a high probability bets in some of these plays. Uh, and um, that's probably the most important thing to have, though, in these turnarounds is a good management team that as you've done it before or even has made some mistakes and um, met the challenges and um, was able to go power a few mistakes. I love those, too, like finding a company that where a CEO admits he made a mistake and then uh, or she makes, makes a mistake and find some way to correct it and come back even stronger. Now you've gone through a situation where you've already a CEO has been through a challenge and conquered it and you know and that's one challenge maybe that'll never you know he'll never have to you know face again because um he's been able to you know get through it once and it kind of kind of makes our investment safer sometimes to, to invest in a good ceo that's had some issues and got through it i don't know if that's something you, know, you, you kind of looked at yourself too but. yeah absolutely and i i loved that you called out in your q a uh the example of you know the ceo who said to you you know why is dilution bad um, I think a huge reason for some of these micro cap stocks not um, getting any traction is they're just not run by people who actually understand how this ecosystem works. And, you know, they'll just dilute the hell out of a stock just thinking, yeah, we need the money, so I need to raise it now. Um, but there's, there's ways of doing it. You know, you can stagger the, the, the raises, um, show some momentum, raise again at a higher price, reduce dilution, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it was funny when, you know, if a CEO is saying to you, why is dilution bad, then I'd probably avoid that company um, regardless of <laughs> how much <laughs> revenue they've got. <laughs> yeah, I was, it was funny because that was my, one of my site visits I did several years ago. And um, I was actually being uh, – I spent two days with the company, you know, touring the facilities, you know, they had a few different facilities, interviewing employees, interviewing different, you know, piece of, um, people at the management team. And, um, you know, I, was, I felt pretty good about the company, what they were doing. And then, um, you know, on the drive home, the CEO decided to give me a ride to the airport. It was like a good hour and a half ride. And it was during the end of my trip that I started figuring these, you know, kind of weaknesses. <laughs> and we started talking about evolution. <laughs> He's like, well, what's dilution? Why does it matter? Why? I mean, I still own, if I own 300 shares of stock, I own 300 shares of stock. Well, you, you oh, own no. the company. <laughs> so I say, I, I, I got home, like, I can't buy, I don't care how good, I don't even care if the stock went up at that point. I yeah. think at, at some point I'm going to get screwed by a company that doesn't understand, you know, what that means. And um, it was a situation where I think the CEO kind of got handed the company through different, gen, you know, generation and um, just was handed a really good company and it's, it's doing fine today but it wasn't the CEO I wanted to invest in. So I, you know, I, I kind of passed, um, actually the stock did go up after, you know, significantly after I sold it, but I, I still don't blame myself for doing that. Um, yeah, no, great. So it's all about putting the odds into your favor, right? And if you've got, and I'm sure he's got the best intentions at heart, but if you don't understand how kind of, not just how a business is run, but how the stock market runs and how the micro cap space runs, you know, you can do a lot of damage to a stock, even if you're kicking goals in the company itself. Oh, sure. Actually, Bobby, there was a company I interviewed at your um, conference that a little upset that, you know, he didn't quite, quite get that whole, didn't mind about diluting. It was all about growing, you know, issuing shares, making acquisitions and growing revenue at any cost. And, uh, um, and he just didn't, he didn't, we were going back and forth on that and he just didn't get the whole like, well, you know, you can't bloat your share count up. At some point it's going to matter. And um, so this, 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 this there's still a lot of management teams that don't understand that whole concept today. And they want to grow and capture market share. They don't understand. Sometimes I got to say no. Sometimes you say no and really dominate what you're already doing well, if you are doing it well. And let somebody else have some of that market, man. Go ahead. If you can just do a lot really good in your market. And maybe eventually you'll be strong enough to take, steal that market eventually. Yeah, and I, I know we're talking about equity raises and, and it's normally viewed in a negative light, but I think in the micro cap space for the majority of stocks, you know, they need equity to run. Um, it's just about doing it in the right way. Um, so I'll give an example. If I've got a, because, you know, on the ASX, we've got a lot of mining stocks. If you've got a, a mining explorer that needs, say, um, $3 million to, mine, to you know, uh, drill a site and try to find a jork 
um, number, then instead of raising $3 million right from the outset, you know, raise 500,000. Do a bit of exploring, try to see if you can find um, the, the areas that have the highest potential for um, the drill bit to hit something you know, that will actually result in the share price appreciating, then raise another 500,000. As you're going and raise as you go, because let's say that that lease in particular, this is you know, using a story stock as an example, that lease is a dud. You just raised $3 million and 500,000 in, you've, um, you've realized that there's nothing in the ground, then that cash is just gonna be sitting there and you just diluted everybody for no reason. So I think um, raising money is okay when they're doing it in the right way and they're doing it to um, realize goals that'll eventually lead to the share price, you know, increasing over time. But uh, yeah, I think it's a problem in, in the space um, where directors, et cetera, don't really know um, the negative impact you can have, especially going to, um, you know, what we call them here, I'm not sure what you call them in the US, is, you know, sophisticated investors. Uh, we're just, you know, someone who's got, who's certified to participate in equity raises. You know, that can create a lot of overhang in, in the long term. And if you getting the wrong people and you're just diluting too heavily, then, you know, you, you can pretty much put the stock on hold for 12 to 18 months because it's just got so much churn it's got to go through before they can actually, you know, um, start realizing some value for shareholders. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. You know, we don't, we don't hate, like, there's reasons to raise capital in the market. That's why these things are public. And it's, you know, definitely if they do it right, with the right team and the right focus and the right goals, yeah, it can be a great thing. And, and I'm not, you know, when you, it's sometimes, you, you know when they make sense sometimes, right? And sometimes it just don't make sense. You know, if you see a company that's bloated share counts it's, over years, you can, you can you sort of see that this management team doesn't know what it's doing. It's not really growing, right? But it just keeps bloating up a share count. So I like- You should, yeah, I like to um, really pay a lot of focus and attention to that in my research phase because None of this is a surprise. If you've got a CEO who's been at a company for say three years and all he's done is dilute shareholders and you know, what makes us think he's gonna be any different in the future? So you can just see based on the history of the company in your analysis, how they've treated their cash you know, um, and how they've um, managed equity raises. And you just expect more of that into the future. So if, you've been, if it's been handled well, then you know, I, I, I don't go in being worried that they're gonna to have to raise capital because they've handled it well in the past. And there are actually times that you want a company to raise capital. I mean, if you if, you know if you're only you own a company that's had like a, maybe a, a, a five or a six seven year track of doing well and growing the company and executing and uh, you know a good return on their investment, and you 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 realize that you know raising equity might be a good thing because of the rate, rate of returns they're getting on the on their on their money. So. It's, yep. And you might even want to participate in those equity raises or something. I was just about to say that because I know you do, and I, I do as well. That if, I, if I'm going into a company knowing that they're going to have to do an equity raise, say in the next 12 months, um, then I'd, I'd want to be a part of that and kind of uh, lock up some of that capital for myself. And yeah, yeah. I just actually today I, I, um, emailed a CEO and said, hey, you know, if you're going to do a, if you're going to do a raise anytime soon, let me know, please, because I want, I want to be part of it. <laughs> and so um, we'll, we'll see. But yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, that's, that's the thing. If you, have, if you have to ask, it's usually better if they're asking you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I think sometimes when you've got some um, management teams that have a lot of skin in the game, like I've got one now, I won't mention names, but I've got one now where um, they are due to do a raise. Um, it would really help their balance, their balance sheet and uh, you know, instill some more confidence um, with investors, but they own 40% of the register. They don't want to dilute themselves. So you could actually... Um, go the other way where they should be doing a raise and it's okay to do a raise, but they're not. And it's actually holding the company back. Absolutely. Yep. So, I mean, you know, back to penny stocks, I mean, I don't want to, don't want to dominate our conversation, but you know, it's, it's interesting to talk about them because we do think there's definitely value there if you do it right. I, I really don't care what any other investor thinks about us and you know, our, our pension for liking that sometimes. It's not everything I do. and It's not everything you do. Have a, as part of a bucket isn't that bad of a thing. You have a penny stock course, right? Or some kind of course you're doing? Yeah, so I was, this was about 12 months ago. I started thinking about, you know, how do I kind of take the, my blog, my site kind of to the next level when it comes to education? Because I've, I've got, I create a lot of articles around, you know, my experiences, what I've learned, things that people should kind of keep in mind. And I thought if I can create a course um, that I personally did myself 10 years ago, and could have maybe saved two or three years in my kind of learning journey, um, then what would that look like? And I just, just over a number of months, I just started to just write down what, what are the key things 
um, that people should consider in this space. Like this isn't going to mean you're going to go find the next hundred bagger. This is what should you be doing from a kind of a risk perspective to ensure that every stock that you're analyzing is taken through a specific set of criteria and looking at stuff like cash, cash on hand, equity raises, director shareholdings, um, and that sort of stuff, which can eliminate, you know, 70 or 80% of your risk from the outset. And you just get rid of all those companies that, you know, have very low cash levels run by people who have no skin in the game um, and have never managed an equity raise properly. You know, if you can avoid those situations, which will eventually lead to large drawdowns, um, then you, you kind of put yourself in a really good position to be able to make some good gains over time. Because I think the one thing, if you can avoid a large drawdown, it's fine to have little losses and only a few little gains. Um, but over time, you'll find those one or two stocks that will kind of take your portfolio to the next level if you can avoid the large losses. So the main focus of this course is really just to give um, people that risk um, analysis lens to the penny stock world. Um, so they can you know, avoid those stories that end up in the newspaper that make everybody you know, hate the penny stock world. Yes, it's really important. You mentioned too about reducing the universe. So whatever you can do to kind of make the, your research bucket manageable is really good, especially for a beginner investor or getting involved in this, or if you have limited time, if you're a part-time investor, you know, like, and, and we have uh, 20,000 microcap stocks here in the, in the North America. And I mean, t- total stocks, 10,000 microcaps. Um, and then, you know, how do you get through that and bring it down to manageable list? And it's really good to have a process where, you know, you might miss some stuff, but at least if you can get down to something that, increase your probability of having winners and making your time efficient. That's really good. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. There's kind of creating a bucket of, Hey, here's the high priority bucket to look at and everything else, you know, I'm going to avoid it. Right. And, yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yeah. And it's all about risk reward. Right. So, you know, if we go back to that oil example, you know, the reward of an oil driller um, hitting oil is hu- huge, right? You could see a thousand percent overnight, but the, the risk, is if, if they don't, you know, you're going to lose 95% overnight. So to me, that risk reward um, is unacceptable. So I think it's really important for someone to kind of define what they're comfortable um, from a risk reward perspective dealing with, and then from there, find stocks that meet that criteria. So me, for example, I'm happy to risk 30% of my capital in a particular stock um, to find in a stock that has the potential, sorry, to do 500 plus if management deliver, um, over time. So my, that's my personal risk uh, reward ratio, minus 30 to plus 500. That doesn't mean stocks I'm buying are all going to do plus 500. That means I've got to have the potential in this space to do you know, 5x over time. And I'm happy to lose 30% of my capital to try and find those scenarios. If it's more than 30, then more than likely I won't participate, even if the reward is you know, through the roof. Are you, are you kind of putting, um, are you letting the stocks, you know, let's say you had that 30% you know, and a 500% type of criteria. Yeah. Are you, like, you're going to be some volatility there. So if you're, if you, if your stock falls percent, are you still going to stay in it if the story's the same or are you actually putting a, a limit there to sell it? No, I, I, honestly, in 11 years, I've never used a stop loss. I, I've never sold purely because of where the share price is. Um, if the story is the same, like if we use COVID as the example, right? Um, stocks that have, that were performing T1 microcaps or even story stocks that have really high potential with really minimal risk, um, they all got smashed in that kind of late February, early March period. And look where we are now. So I don't set up a, a stop loss or any kind of um, criteria for to sell based on price. I, I sell based on the fundamentals. So is the story I bought in still in play? And if it is, I'm happy to hold. Um, I, that might mean I'm, I'm wrong and I'm going to lose uh, some money, which is fine. Um, but if it's uh, purely based on price, then, you know, I, I've, I've seen some, I've gone through, you know, minus 50% drawdowns in a stock and which have gone on to be multi-baggers. So I'm, I'm really just worried about my story, my strategy. And then from there, the price will kind of just do its thing over time. And if management deliver, then short-term fluctuations kind of even themselves out over time. I totally agree with you on that. And I've always thought stop loss. I mean, I guess if you're a day trader, which I don't do much of is maybe it means something, but you know, the problem with stop losses, you can be, you know, you can be, you know, if you're, if you're wrong too many times, it can wipe up a lot of those losses, right? I mean, gains over time. So just by I get it for day traders, that's fine. But as in, if you're a micro cap investor, you can't yeah. use a stop loss, you know, and especially in liquid micro caps, you could have someone sell $500 and drop the share price by 10 or 15%. You know, that, that, that shouldn't cause you to panic and sell. You're using that as opportunity, right? I mean, that's what we, that's what we do. Yeah. Yep. Um, totally agree with you. 
Um, you know, some, of these, some of these spreads could be 10% just by themselves or 20% on the bid and ask. So when you're looking at, when you're looking at your, um, well, I guess, do you invest in U.S. stocks now or only, only Aussie? No, only Aussie for now. Mm-hmm. It is something I've been interested in. Like, you know, what, um, why wouldn't there be amazing opportunities in the U.S., in Canada? I think Canada is very um, comparable to the ASX as well. Uh, maybe it's just because we have such a huge micro cap sector here on the ASX. I've never really felt the need to go offshore yet, uh, but it will be something I'm interested in and potentially in the future. What about you? Do you do anything with ASX? Yeah, not really. I'm with you. Same with you. There's so much opportunity, I feel, in the U.S. I don't have to, you know, necessarily yeah. try. I, I, I do do some Canada now. Um, I've found some. I used to really not like Canada at all for years. Um, the, a lot of, it was a stigma there. It still kind of is here and there, but... Of course, that's that, that stigma is what can cause you to want to go in there and, you know, um, find There's the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, why am I, that's, I kind of preach against that. <laughs> so I said, I find a few jams and I've been doing that now and um, it's, I've been enjoying it. So I'm expanding myself to, to Canada right now. Um, I don't know if, I don't know where Aussie is going to fit in there, but I would like, to, if I could find stocks with, you know, similar kind of capital structure requirements that I look at, I'd like to look at that area for sure. So, yeah, man. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you about your $50,000 challenge. So you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So um, this goes back to, you know, the whole thing around majority of, you know, investors hating the micro cap space. So um, I thought to kind of prove that micro cap investors, penny stock investors, whatever you want to call it, can consistently make money. It's not just the, you know, you'll get lucky with one in a hundred and they'll just say you're lucky and you've got no skill anyway that I thought I would launch a public portfolio where um, I kind of announce on the same day when I buy or sell a stock um, and to see what kind of returns. And I'm looking for consistent returns. You know, I'm not looking to find one stock that, you know, ends up being a hundred bagger, which, you know, obviously won't complain if that happens. But the, the reason behind it is to show some consistency that over time through different markets, you know, micro cap investors can consistently make money. And um, coincidentally, it was right before COVID hit, so I kind of, I've stress tested uh, my strategy through that period publicly, which was stressful at one time because, you know, I launched that obviously with $50,000. Um, it's obviously real cash. And in the March lows, um, it hits just under $35,000. Um, and then fast forward to now, it's just cracked 100 k So that volatility um, in different markets, and that goes back to the whole stop loss thing. You know, those same stocks that were, down to 35,000 have gone up to, you know, over a hundred thousand. So, um, yeah, the, the purpose of the challenge is, um, just to show some consistency and hopefully I can just run it for a few years and just, and show some decent returns in different kinds of markets and just kind of see what happens. And I was saying to Bobby in our first podcast that my, from a percentage perspective, the 50 K challenge is doing better than my own personal portfolio. And I think that's because it's, um, uh, public facing and you know you, you just think oh, i don't want to look stupid if i make a mistake so you pay really you pay extra attention to everything um attention to detail make sure you're not missing something obvious and maybe that's something you're going to take back to my own personal portfolio and and maybe just uh either make a public or just pretend that everyone's watching so i can um maybe you, know, you, have, maybe you have your wife run the model portfolio with somebody <laughs> <laughs> no, i give my wife out of this stuff <laughs> especially the profits i can't show her the profits she'll spend she'll spend too much money <laughs> do you um do you publicize the the stocks that are in this model portfolio yes yeah, so i'll i'll and i keep it very high level because I, I want to avoid anyone thinking it's some kind of um like a professional advice or anything like that so i'll just kind of advise what the stock is the day i buy it what the stock is um my entry price the reasons for buying it and the risks of i see with the company and then when i sell it um, provide a reason for why i sold it and just whether i realized a net profit or a net loss and it's mm-hmm. all the same day are you, are you are these are these are these trading or are you holding these stocks i guess that was a nice, a nice question oh uh, no so um Three of them, which were in the portfolio when I first started, are still in there. And I've, I think I've sold two and repurchased another two. So I'm not trading. Um, my normal kind of, uh, my, I find my personal sweet spot with my strategy is about 24 months uh, to hold that stock. So mm-hmm. um, if they don't perform, I'll cut them earlier for sure. If they perform, if they kind of get ahead of themselves and they, the share price runs too quickly, then I'm not afraid to lock them in early if I feel that it's kind of just um, that 
priced in too much future potential, uh, future kind of uh, milestones being met. So I'll lock them in early. So I had one that I locked in, um, I think in three or four months, and that's very rare for me. Um, really, it's 18 to 24 months is when I normally sell. And a couple of those stocks are getting towards the 18-month period now um, where they have been delivering, which is great. I'm happy to hold them. They're up, um, uh, I think, 2x and one is approaching 3x. And I'm... Not, not at the stage where I'm happy to lock them in because the risk reward is still in my kind of um, where I like it. So happy to hold them until either um, management stop delivering or they kind of, it, it runs too too fast, too quick. Great. Yeah, I thought putting together these like model portfolios are pretty cool. So I have my own portfolio also. Then I, within Geo, we've also created these model portfolios to kind of take our, all of our, we have a list of all of our long calls, which you, I mean, you might've seen Gladiator. Yeah, yeah, I'll say them, yeah. It's a lot of them, though. So we, we in 2016, I think it was, um, or end of 15, we say, you know, it's, there's, let's, let's take all of our stocks that we're disclosing that we're buying and put them in different portfolios based on different themes. And that really helped me a lot, actually. Even, um, it basically helped me, even with the stocks I own, it helped me say, because we have a high conviction portfolio, we have a contrarian portfolio, we have a run-to-one portfolio, which are stocks under one that we think are going to go over one eventually. So it really helped me put things in perspective. Um, and I think it's made, actually made me a better investor by doing that, by, by forcing me to find the, like the, out of maybe 40, 50 stocks on my own at some point, the best 10, because it made me think about it. And I really like doing that. So maybe that's what you're kind of going for here too. You know, you have your, your live yeah, exactly. portfolio, then you have your model portfolio, which you're really maybe paying a little more attention to because you're public facing and everything. And I kind of see where you're going on that, you know, and you, you want to, you don't want to let your people down, right? And, yeah, exactly. I don't want to let the micro cap community down. <laughs> let these large cap investors, you know, uh, laugh down at us. So yeah, I've got to keep it strong. And I want to get your view on, you know, what I was just going through around if a stock runs too quickly, even though it's still a great stock, you know, what do you do in that scenario? Yeah, that's you know, the subject of what I'll be talking about in a video on Geo and maybe this, hopefully later this week, you know, buy, sell or hold. Like, how do you know what to do when a stock goes up? And that really, that's really, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing, right? I mean, it, there's a, there's a, from the perspective of, okay, there's two perspectives. Do you already own the stock? Because so you're coming into it from that kind of position, then it's gone up, right? Or are you new to stock and it's gone up? Are you afraid to buy it? So what do you do? And those are really um, this, the thing that is the, the decision we struggle with. And a lot of it depends on the environment, man. So, um, you know, that's so the first step really is to figure out is Kate, when you're looking at a stock, are you looking, you know, where is that conviction level first of all? And is it going to be a, do you, do you anticipate it being a short term or long term play for you? So, you know, just to, are you buying a stock that's just a COVID play that, you know, has a, you know, a mask play or a sanitizer play, or are you buying more of a, maybe a longer term kind of trend? And these are things you need to, you need to start, um, you know, thinking about. That's how I do it at least. And, then if you so if you are going to, so you have, you had your long-term, your short-term stuff and the difficulty, let's, let's start with the, the short-term is easy. So you have a, you have a, you buy a stock and you know, when I was doing short-term and I do that, I try and find a stock where I think is a catalyst for the next four or five quarters. That's going to really pay off for me. And that strategy worked really, really well in my first 20 years of investing before 2008 came along, you know, a couple that de- first couple decades. And, um, the situation there was that these tier one layer caps were, were very in demand. It worked really well. And the market was, you know, would, would find these stocks and bid into a value that I thought was appropriate relatively quickly. So I was, that was, a, that was probably a six to 12 month investor and my longest really to trying to find these really powerful inflection points. And it worked well. Um, I never really thought long-term per se. And then 2008 came along and that strategy wasn't working anymore. And, you know, the, 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 really after 2008, um, these tier one companies were not in play. We lost a lot of investors, retail investors that invested in these companies. Um, institutional investors couldn't invest in these stocks anymore, didn't want to. Uh, the, the regulatory environment or got a little tougher. And a lot of brokerage firms make it harder to buy stocks. So the amount of money being you know, thrown in these companies wasn't as, as aggressive as it used to be. So this, my strategy wasn't working well anymore. You know, consistently enough. Um, so I, I had to change my view to okay, why well, I need a longer term type of perspective on what I'm doing here. So then that's when I really started becoming more a long term investor. So you know, looking for those kind of companies. 
So the challenge with, so, so, so it was, but I think now we're back though, by the way, I think now we're back to that first couple, you know, two decades of, um, at least for now of, you know, being able to find these inflection points and having them run to a short-term price target. Um, so then the challenge then, okay, so these companies I'm, I'm, that I might be buying short-term, do I, do I want to invest in any of them longer term? And how do you set a price target 10 years from now? It's really tough or five years from now. So that becomes a much different analysis of deeper analysis in the company, deeper in the management team. So, so now I'm thinking, okay, well, if a stock has reached my short-term target um, based on some, based on some valuation, I'm still going to keep it, or I might sell some of it, of course, to emotionally help myself feel better that I took some profit at the table. But <laughs> if, if I ask myself this one question, can this thing be a lot bigger five, 10 years from now? So I don't, and if the answer is yes, I'm not going to be too concerned that's overvalued right now because, you know, I might have to suffer, you know, for six months, a year, and it's not going down a little bit and maybe not moving, you know, in anticipation of the next big, maybe five, maybe a five, five bagger or 10 bagger. Um, and it forces you to look at a company longer term and some trust and management that they're just going to continue to deliver for you. So, you know, really determine if you're holding a stock short term or long term, hit your short term target, you know, get out, don't make excuses for, you know, holding a longer term. You know, the only excuse for holding a stock past your short term target, in my opinion, really, is if you've turned that company into a, a higher conviction play where you don't really care about price targets, where you care about the company growing over time, and then it's going to grow into it. Um, and that's what I've kind of been trying to do better. So my core portfolio is really probably um, mainly comprised of these um, really high conviction stock plays where I don't really care about valuation now. I just think they're going to be a lot bigger in the future and go up a lot. Um, and I'll try and figure out when that ch story changes, if it does. And then I always say that's about, 70% of my portfolio, maybe. And then around that, I have these shorter term kind of inflection point plays that we talked about earlier. Um, now with the market getting a little better for these micro cap stocks, you got Robin Hood, you got, um, you got the, who's that guy, Dave Portney, whatever, is that his name? So the guy, Dave Portney. Um, yeah. yeah, or um, what's his name? Uh, I forgot, but he's, he's a character or whatever. He's, he's bringing money into the space, I guess. And so you have a lot of millennials getting involved in, the, in these stocks. So I, I see a lot of, permanent volume coming in uh, into the space. So in that respect, there is opportunity to make money short-term in this tier one space. So I am finding myself taking some, you know, bigger bets around that core strategy now and it's, it's working right now. So that's- Yeah, I think you raised two, two key points um, that I picked up on. So the first one was, you know, you've got to be like, when you've been in this space long enough, you know when a stock is kind of overextended and you know that it's going to come down. Um, and if you are a long-term holder in the stock, it's really hard to be able to um, just kind of accept that the next six or 12 months aren't going to be great from a, a share price perspective and be, be willing to kind of go through that with the long-term kind of view in mind. And the second thing was you can only do that if, you've, if it's a really high conviction play. Um, and, and if I'm just running through my portfolio in my head, I've seen a lot of stocks where I've, I've cut them because they've run um, too fast, too quick. And I've got a couple now that did run really fast, really quick, but it, that was still um, uh, much lower than I thought they could be in a few years' time, in, in that 24-month period of time. So I left them knowing that the share price was going to go down and then hopefully in time recover and then go on to new highs. So it's a difficult balance. Um, but yeah, without conviction, there's, just, there's no way you could hold them. And, and you know, it's, it, it's, what's, what's funny, and it feels better too, you don't have to, have to worry about it all the time, right? <laughs> but the... Uh, I know like one of my best stocks I've owned, you know, and I had it for, you know, you know, for a long time, like I think maybe 13 years. When I first bought it, it was, okay, well, you know, I bought it maybe 10 cents and then I had a price target of 50 cents. Then I had a price target of buck 20, <laughs> you know, now it's- Well, if they keep delivering then you know, <laughs> yeah. why, why not? It was over, it was always really never tremendously undervalued but they just kept growing the company and eventually revenues, you know, were just sort of accelerating in stock, I think at 13 recently. And um, that's an example of this. The stock still is aggressively valued, but management keeps delivering. So some of these stocks that have management teams that keep delivering year after year, year, just start, you need to have start having confidence in them. Um, if they really have these really uh, incredible business models that have good competitive advantages and some moats maybe. 
Um, and I've learned that. That was something I, you know, I, I learned that very late in my investing career to do that because I was forced to. And I really started to, I really enjoy it. I think I wasn't really a investor for many of my early part of my career investing. Um, I became a much better investor when I was forced to abandon that short-term stuff and start looking long-term. I'm glad it happened, actually. Really glad it happened. I enjoy life more, actually, too, with that kind of strategy. I having to worry about every, every freaking tick. <laughs> Knowing that I have more confidence in the teams I'm investing in, it's just a lot better feeling. And to go through it, you got to go through it. So going through COVID was really interesting for me because I went through a, you know, a correction and I didn't panic at all. You know, I've panicked in other corrections here and there, you know, regrettably because I didn't know my companies as well as I, I would have liked to. And I own actually too many of them. Um, but so this whole COVID thing was really a test of that whole new strategy. And I'm I really, really, really enjoying it. I mean, I enjoy, I enjoy crashes now. I enjoy pullbacks. <laughs> so. That's a weird thing to like. Yeah. Well, I was actually tweeting about it yesterday that, you know, it's hard enough finding one really good stock than, you know, having to jump from stock to stock, trying to find the next kind of multi-bagger. The odds are just so low. And sometimes the hardest thing is to actually do nothing and just leave them as they are and give them kind of the enough room to grow over time. Absolutely, man. I mean, it's like when you're in a short term, you're, just, when you're, short -term, you're, just, you're recycling everything, right? And then what happens a lot and what could happen in that situation is because you're investing in like short-term type of things and you end up in this rinse-repeat cycle, you could make a lot of money. You know, I was making a lot of money. And then you end up being, you know, fully invested potentially in a market crash where you just have shit companies long-term. So... Yeah. They can't cycle. They, they they don't come back sometimes when they fall because you know whatever was going on with them, short term was a, you know very short term thing that was dependent upon what's going on in the market and maybe in the business environment that that maybe changed permanently after the you know the, the, um, the crash whatever. So, I, I just feel like sometimes less decisions is better is better right. Not, not having to make as many decisions, is probably a better situation um, instead of having yeah, to. Yeah, I've definitely been caught in that position, um, cycling through stocks and making a lot of money and then market turns and you, you pick it up too late and then you're pretty much stuck um, and you either have to cut them for big losses or you hold them and you're just holding with hope, which never kind of ends well. So um, you, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strategy that can work in really good times like the market we're in now. Um, but when, when things turn, it, it can turn against you very quickly. I remember doing, uh, you know, my taxes when I used to, I used to do myself and yeah, I was forced to do all the, you know, write everything in physical entries and everything on, on the, um, on the schedules. And, you know, I feel, oh, I made all this money this year. And then, then I would go look at my picks. Oh my God. Most of them suck. I made most of my money, I made most of my money and maybe my top, you know, 15%. <laughs> you know, yeah. It was like, and I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And I got that postmortem. So that was a, a good eye opener too. Yeah, and going back to what you were saying about enjoying crashes, you know, if I if I think back over the last ten years in, in the in my early and they, these weren't kind of a lot of this just happened on the ASX, so you guys wouldn't have known about them. But there were quite a few kind of mini crashes in the micro cap space, and even when kind of Trump uh, came in as as president, we had a huge drop here. So in the beginning, it was all like you know, it was freak out place all these sale orders in great companies that didn't deserve to be sold. Um, and then come COVID time, it was actually the first time where I was really calm about the whole thing, um, which I think that gave me a lot of confidence in my own kind of maturity in the space and how much I've grown that. You know, if, if this happened a few years earlier, I would have just completely freaked out, sold everything and bought back in at the wrong time and then even lost more money. So I think, yeah, sitting back and just doing nothing and just letting things play out um, is most of the time, I think is the best thing to do. I think it's, you know, sometimes boring isn't fun, but you know, yeah. <laughs> if, if it makes money, I'm okay with it. <laughs> so, but that's the aim, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I used, I used to feel guilty. I mean, actually when I, when I first started doing my, you know, research when investing, I would probably, cause I had a, I had a, I had other jobs, so I couldn't do it every day. And, um, I used to do my research like a, a, every Sunday for six, five, six hours, a skull session. And um, did really, really well for many, you know, doing that. And then I 
when I, I figured if I was really obsessed with doing research every, every day, getting obsessed with it, I used to do a little, I do a little worse sometimes. Uh, so it's kind of, I feel guilty sometimes for not doing it every day, but you don't need to be, you know, in front of your computer every day if, if you're doing it, you know, what we're talking about. And um, that's something that's really enjoyable too when you're, when you're not, when you're investing for the long term and investing in the companies. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what kind of sets, I don't know how I have a lot of respect for day traders. I don't know how they do it, but being in front of the screen all day, watching tick by tick what's happening, um, it, it's hard to do. And, and you're right. You want to get to the point, of course, the early years, you've got to put in those hours, but you want to get to, to the point where you can have your you know, core portfolio that's, you've got, you got great stocks, you've got a wish list of stocks on the side, you just keep in line with them to see what they're doing and just kind of enjoying life. Yeah, and I'm not knocking day trading. I mean, I think I know people who do do well at it. Um, it just wasn't for me. And I, th I think, you know, you're either going to, you can either be this, a 70, 80% of your portfolio in just long-term course strategy with a little bit of short-term trading, whatever the day trading in there too. Maybe you're a day trader of 80% of your portfolio. Maybe you do a little around that, put, you know, some core positions on for the long-term. I think they can work together. There's, 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 there's no one solution, right, for investing. So that's what's nice I think about it. Yeah, I think there's um, one thing that people underestimate is just really understanding your own personality and bringing that into your investing. So someone who's really, you know, high energy, always out doing stuff, that, that might be great as day traders, right? Because they're, they're used to that and they kind of thrive on that action. But um, if you're not that kind of person and you're trying to be a day trader um, because you've seen other people do it, then you're just going to fail. And, and the same on the other way. If you are a um, really high energy person, then, you know, you can't be, um, running a Warren Buffett type portfolio, holding stocks for 40 years. You just kill yourself. So you've got, to, you've got to find your balance with the personality, um, with your investing um, style. And when those kind of, those two things come together, you, you can find a really good balance. Yeah. I remember in that 08 crash, um, or, uh, I was like, oh my God, I'm like, I, was, I was down 65% of my portfolio. Yeah, it was funny. I was up 20% going into September, feeling like I was a hot shot and lost it all like in two weeks. <laughs> September yeah. <laughs> you know, 08, and I'm like, what am I gonna do now? And, you know, I was like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna live? Because I was, you know, really supporting myself on my, my portfolio. Yeah. And I started day trading, and man, I just, oof. It, 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 you know, I got, it was exciting that I can see the adrenaline you get from it. I mean, doing because when, when you make a good trade, you love it, and you, you can get streaky in it. But then when you get, then when you get like, you, you lose your first three or four in a row, you start, you start losing, I start losing confidence, and I was like, I just was not enjoying it at all. I mean, I didn't know where they went. Yeah. It felt like 10 hours and by in 30 minutes. <laughs> you know? So exhausted. You know? And uh, I had a trader, you know, where I'm yelling, I'm going to do this, do that. That was crazy. And uh, big beard and big afro. <laughs> so it was, and then what was funny was I still, though, around that, I had bought like three or four stocks and held them. And that's what got me out. I mean, I made some good day trading here and there, you know, a few, a few lucky hits, but it was those four or five stocks that I had a little bit of what I had left my money that got me out of it. And it was, it was pretty, um, you know, pretty, pretty funny that, that how, that's how it worked out. But man, I, you know, I, I do it once in a while and I go back and let me, let me try to day trade and stuff again. And um, I still, if I do day trade, I like to combine it with fundamental investing where I, I know like a, a catalyst is happening. Maybe it's a lower quality company, not, not, not quite a tier one company, but there is a catalyst happening. I'll, you know, I'll try and, Hit one, hit one out of this park once in a while if I can. Um, but um, it's not really what I enjoy anymore or really much I really ever did. Yeah, um, so it'll, it'll be tough work. But yeah, I agree. If, if you feel every now and again you need a bit of an uh, adrenaline rush, why not give a, have a few day trades and see how you go. But yeah. Remind myself how I am at it. <laughs> so. yeah. An annual reminder. <laughs> even, <laughs> even when you've got, you know, it's on my own stocks that, you know, uh, at some stage of their development they hit a huge milestone and the company you know i don't know uh runs overnight i feel exhausted by the end of the day i'm not even trading i'm just watching what's happening and you know by the time the market closes i feel like i've run a marathon i really haven't done anything so you just got to find <laughs> what works for you and kind of and find that balance and i, I want to ask you one last i mean it's been a long time but taking i think bobby's gonna pass out over there really quick uh, so i want to get you know, maybe ask you one question here um uh you know, so we do a lot of, um, we call it information arbitrage here in geo-investing, which is, you know, digging into filings in the microcap space or digging into commerce call transcripts 
to see if we can find information that's just sitting there that really hasn't been talked about in the press releases or anywhere like that. Um, and that works really well for us. We had the one we talked about in the weekly letter this week, if you read the, if you read a gladiator. Um, but so do you, I'm wondering, is that something you do or is that, are those opportunities? Explain the process that there's SEC filings here in the U.S. What, what are the filings or the mechanism that you use for research? I'm sure you got press releases, but does that same information arbitrage kind of exist in your markets also? Yeah, so we have um, what we call quarterly um, announcements. So it's a quarterly activities report, which gives like a fundamental view of what the company's been doing over the quarter and what they're looking to do in the next quarter. And we have a quarterly cash flow report, which shows it's, a, it's not at like an annual report level. There's no uh, balance sheet, uh, profit and loss, et cetera, but it's a high level view of the um, finances for the company over the quarter. And then obviously we have half yearly reports, and which is, you know, for the first half of the year and then an annual report for the entire um the entire year. My, my personal strategy is um, very similar to yours where, you know, I don't look out for kind of press releases or media releases or analyst reports or anything like that. And I know um, Ian Castle talks about this as well, uh, a strategy that he uses. It's kind of just the A to Z approach where I'm just going to pull up a list of stocks under a particular market cap and just work through them one at a time, really boring, no scanner, and just trying to find stuff in there that nobody else has kind of, um, put the time in to find. Um, and I think that's where kind of my edge comes in, where you know, a lot of people are finding their stocks on scanners, which everybody has. Um, not many people are willing to go through, you know, dozens or hundreds of stocks and um, do some in-depth analysis on them just based on, could it just even be a paragraph in a quarterly report, which piques my interest and then just do some research around what that means for the company, what could it mean in the future? Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, um, I stay away from ways of finding stocks where the majority of people can stumble upon them as well. And that includes social media. Um, and I, I really just like to do my boring A to Z um, stock analysis. And it takes a lot of time and you've got to go through a lot of, you know, let's say for every hundred stocks, maybe 10 of them deserve further research. And of the 10, um, maybe three kind of make the cut. And out of those three, one of them's probably, you know, run too far and it kind of doesn't make sense from a rich reward perspective. And you're spending kind of weeks um, and months worth of work to find one or two stocks. But, you know, it's, it's that kind of scenario where if you're willing to go through that, uh, that process and that pain, then you can find a stock that no one else has found and you can kind of get set slowly over time if, if it's in a liquid micro cap. And, and then just watch when the milestones actually start coming through, everyone else piling in much higher multiples than, than you did. So and that's kind of what works for me and that's what I've been doing. Excellent, yeah. The, the one we actually came across, which I won't, I won't get out the symbol right now, it's too illiquid, um, but um, it is under a dollar. And if you recall, like they had, they, these got, they won a contract uh, with um, the, part, uh, the government and um, they won the contract from uh, an incumbent who had been servicing the contract, I think, for several years. And this particular company that we actually own it um, was basically depending on this contract to get the profitability and really get revenues going. They had a clean capital structure, no zero debt. They've had a hard time getting um, you know, uh, momentum. And this particular contract was supposed to be it. And they were actually were awarded a contract, um, I believe, at the end of last year and the incumbent, I guess there's a process where you can protest it and they protested it. Um, so then there wasn't, I guess, another arbitration kind of um, phase to the whole protest. And then um, we saw the stock, they had, they had earnings last week, we're pretty, we're pretty deep, a good revenue number. I think they broke even. And then when you read, and these, this company does not put out press releases, it hasn't put out press in a long time, so you got to read the filings. And this, they always, they talk about this in their filing. And they talk about an update on this, and actually the incumbent withdrew their, um, their complaint, which means these guys get the contract. And basically, I think they said for the next seven, eight years, they're expecting you know, a significant amount of revenue, uh, predictable revenue from this contract, which we're running the model right now to see if that means consider profitability, but we think it does. So that's only in, now if you look at the, the, the price, the, the stock price chart, it was slowly inching up over the last, you know, three, four months. Because actually, I think if we would have looked three months ago, we would have found this information in the Q1 filing um, as opposed to Q2 filing. And the more you can see this, the, you know, 
And eventually everyone's going to find this, right? Although they'll probably put out a press release at some point and all the, the whole market will find it. So that's a classic case of how we, you know, we find that we use information arbitrage, but I promise last question. I'm sorry, Bobby. <laughs> so we, we are, we are big on using form for analysis here, which is looking for insider, looking what insiders are buying and selling, mainly what they're buying. I mean, when they're buying. Um, so we like to look at insiders that are buying shares directly in the market. And not, we're looking for those transactions, not necessarily the warrants and options. Is there a similar type of filing you guys looking at um, that, you, you, that you look at um, for insider buying? Is there, is there, does that filing exist in your market? Yeah, we do. Um, we've got a, I think it's called Appendix um, Z. I forgot the exact name, but yeah, every time a, a director uh, or insider purchases any stock, they must announce on market. Um, and it's got its own particular announcement form that they've got to uh, populate and kind of announce to the market. I'm not sure the exact time frame. I think it's within a couple of weeks or something. Um, and same with substantial holders. So anyone who purchases over 5% of the capital of a stock um, must announce. And then whenever they buy or sell, after they've announced their 5% um, majority holding, they need to announce that to the market as well. So do you ever use that? Do you use that in Definitely. It's one of the most important things, um, not just how many shares directors have, but how did they actually acquire them? Were they performance shares that were kind of really easy to achieve and kind of gifts or were they um, stock that was purchased on market at the same price as everybody else and just showing kind of confidence in themselves and, and the company itself? And same with substantial holders, um, because when you look at a capital structure, let's say you've got 100 million shares on issue um, in a typical micro cap, then you know, if you've got three or four people holding, let's say 30 to 40% of the company and hopefully management's in there, then you've just tied up, you know, uh, the vast majority of shares on issue. And so there'll be little supply there or um, loose shares, I call them, where they just keep flowing into the market and just keep depressing the share price. So I definitely look for, uh, I look at the capital structure from a, we call them the top 20. So in every annual report, we get a top 20 report for each company, which shows how many um, shares the top 20 shareholders hold. Um, and obviously it would look at um, management holdings and exactly how they acquired the shares, which we can find in the annual report. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's, I think that's, that's good, glad it was a great, great conversation. But one thing I've learned here, I'm gonna definitely, I should probably be investing in your mock portfolio. <laughs> don't do it don't do it <laughs> if it that, you know because i'm i'm not i have no ego over here i'm gonna definitely uh, I, I love your process man it's very similar to mine and you do it in just a different a different, a different country um it was awesome about your process tell us, tell us where we can find you and um where investors can learn and follow you and, and learn more about what you do yeah, so my, my Twitter handle is at the Gladiator HC, um, and my blog slash website is the spec www.thespecinvestor.com.au. Great, great. And um, uh, for, for me, um, my company is a geoinvesting.com. And you can go there, and there's a, we have a seven-day free trial if you're interested in our memberships. Um, we also have a 30-day membership also, which was relatively new. You can follow me personally uh, on Twitter, at Maj Geo Investing. You can follow Geo Investing directly at geoinvesting.com. Um, you can email me, Maj at geoinvesting.com or call me at 267-246-3263. As always, I love talking shop and it never bores me. So uh, call me anytime. Yeah, no, I'm a premium. Sorry, just to finish off, I'm a, I'm a premium subscriber to Maj's Geo Investing. And if you want to know how much work you should be putting in as a microcap investor, um, and how much analysis you should be doing, just sign up and you'll see um, just, you know, the, the amount of analysis that gets sent out in your weekly emails is pretty much the kind of the benchmark of what every micro cap investor should be doing. So it's a great service. Hey, I'll co-sign co that. Co co that. Yeah, Bob, you're getting them too, right? <laughs> yeah, no, look, you guys, this might be the best interviews of you both that I've ever seen. And that includes, I just interviewed both of you. So, I mean, I, I loved it. I loved it. I heard Marge loves getting lattes in the cafe. So this is just kind of just like a cafe over, over coffee conversation. <laughs> All Great. jacked up right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. It's eight o'clock where he is right now. I mean, I, I, I don't know if he's going to sleep now. He's going he's to be looking at Aussie stocks all night. <laughs> <laughs>
I love to do. I love to do. Hey, Gladio, do you ever want to consider doing like a stock pitch one time? You know, um, maybe in the future, like taking us through a presentation, maybe of what stock you like and why you liked it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Great. Yeah, that'd be awesome, man. All right, let's uh, let's let the people go. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. You can also follow the podcast at Avoiding the crowd.podbean.com you can subscribe to the podcast on apple and very shortly on spotify as well and um yeah keep following along for updates uh, my my twitter account you can follow is at bobby k craft b-o-b-b-y-k-k-r-a-f-t it's where i tweet out every new episode of the podcast you can also find each episode on our youtube channel youtube.com slash s-n-n wire that's s-n-n network youtube channel all right thank you guys get some sleep thanks guys well, actually, <laughs> Gladiator, enjoy the rest of your day. I'm just starting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right, guys. Cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of any offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network and Maj Don are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast.